We're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God above all, himself works his work for our salvation in terms of offices. He fills three distinct offices. They're called mediatorial offices because he mediates. There's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And these, of course, are enumerated as prophet, prince, and priest. We've already seen in the very beginning of Hebrews, in the first couple of, the first four verses or so, that Jesus is a prophet. That is, he brings the latest true word of God to his people. God has spoken by him and through him. Jesus is a prophet. We picked up there very quickly in the first chapter and saw that Christ is a prince. We had quoted there the coronation psalm of the ancient text, the Hebrew text, which tells us that he was placed upon the throne and the prince of peace was given his office by his father and it was bestowed upon him sonship that he might operate in that office as a prince, as a sovereign, superior to the angels and, and created all above all. And he himself created all. And no question about it, he is the prince who is to be the king of kings. Here in chapter 2, at this moment in our text, we begin to move into the third office wherein Christ does his work, and that is the office of a priest. And the entire book of Hebrews basically is a book dedicated to helping us understand the work that Christ does as a priest. In fact, for the next nine chapters, the author is not going to get off the subject. In fact, 
He very conveniently in chapter 8, verse 1, in the middle of his incredible discussions of the priesthood, the special high priesthood ministry of Jesus Christ, we read this statement. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. That's the thesis sentence of the, of the whole book. We have a high priest. But what does this mean? What does this mean to us? What does this mean with respect to our salvation? Well, this passage before us today begins to unfold that work that the priest does. A priest has two functions. A priest makes atonement, sacrifice for sins. And a priest intercedes, or that is, prays for his own people. And in order for Christ to be the mediator that he must be, for order him to be the high priest that he must be to us, the scripture said here that he had to be made like his brothers, there in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus had to be like his brothers. He had to become human. And the humanity of Christ is now what is emphasized in this particular passage. The priesthood of Christ, in order for him to take on our condition, our predicament, our sin, and to deal with our situation, he had to become human. He had to become like us. The passage starts out saying that the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. Literally, it says, are of one. In other words, there's a commonality. We have to be made of the same stuff. We have to be the same thing. So there is a unity in our relationship to the Lord. It is a unity that is identity. He has to become us in order to do things for us in order to ultimately make us like him, being conformed to his image. He had to come our way and reach down all the way into our humanity in order to be able to do the work that needed to be done. An angelic being could not have done it. Some other kind of being could not have done it. It must be someone who is flesh and blood. In fact, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And the reason is that he had to be made like his brothers. He had to become human. And that word had, by the way, it's a smoothed out translation, but it really means it's the word ophelia. It means profit. In order for it to profit, in order for it to be efficacious, in order for it to matter, in order for it to work, in order for it to be a successful operation, 
the opera day, the work of God, he had to become human. He had to be made like his brothers. And so that's what the passage says. The one that sanctifies, that is the priest, and those who are sanctified, that is the people, are one. They have not only a unity, but an identity. And it goes beyond a unity and identity. There is a sympathy. He has to become like us so he knows what it is like to suffer in our place. He has to begin his suffering. In fact, that's what it says there in that last verse. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have such a high priest, and we're going to learn more and more about the various facets and aspects of the priesthood of Christ as we work through this epistle of this next few months. But we must know that Jesus had to come. That's what the little manger in Bethlehem, that's what that scene is all about. It's God coming in human flesh. He had to be made like his brothers. The passage that's quoted there says that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name and to my brothers in the midst of the congregation while I sing your praise. This is a psalm, Psalm 22, that in its entirety makes reference to, in addition to what the psalmist had in his situation, it is applied wholly and wholesale to Christ on the cross. It's that passage where he talks about, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's the passage where he talks about, I thirst. And many things that take place during the crucifixion of Christ are prophesied and portrayed in Psalm 22. And one of the things is the testimony that the Lord gives. You see, the whole point of the humanity of Christ is so that he could hang on that cross and suffer on that cross and bear our sins in his own body on that tree. so that he might be our Savior. That's what the passage means here when it picks up there in verse 15, or, or in, in, uh, in verse 14. He says, He himself partook of the same things, that through death, you've heard it said, I'm sure if you've listened to much evangelical preaching, you've heard it said, Jesus was born to die. The incarnation and the atonement are inextricably bound in God's program. It must be a human body in which to suffer. It must be flesh and bone and blood in order for him to fully carry out, to make profitable the work that Christ, the work that God had for him to do in our salvation, that through death he might destroy it's in that verse right there, I want you to just look at two words. They both begin with the word D. In your text there, I'm at the end of verse 14. Destroy and deliver. He had to have a body. He had to be like us. He had to come in the flesh. There had to be an incarnation in order that he might die. 
And through death, his death, he might destroy he who has the power of death. That is, the devil. John, in his first letter in 1 John, says that that was the whole work that Christ came to do, was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil had a work. It was a work of destroying. He's a destroyer. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a deceiver. He is out to destroy everything that God created, starting with creation itself. And then certainly he wanted to destroy that being which held the image of God, the express image. So he set out to destroy and the devil has destruction in his wake ever since we first hear about him. But Christ came to do that work in his flesh that Adam in his flesh failed to do. As by the sin of one man, death entered into the race. Death came by the sin of Adam. Life comes by the obedience of Christ. He's come to destroy the destroyer to destroy the destruction. It's really quite a strong word that's used. And another strong word that's used is the very next one, beginning in verse 15, and deliver, that through death he might destroy the, the Satan and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That word deliver is the word that's used in the Old Testament translation, the Septuagint, into the Greek, Hebrew to Greek, it's the word that speaks of the deliverance. In fact, it's even used in this particular book later on, a few chapters down the line. It's a word that means to rescue, to snatch out, to seize, to reach down and grab hold of and pull out, snatch from the fire, snatch from the grave, to snatch from destruction. That's what Jesus does in the salvation. It's not a light thing. It's not a passive thing. It's not an incidental thing. It is the most vital thing to our salvation. Do you realize you have been rescued? You have been delivered. You have been snatched out. Just like the children of Israel were snatched out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God under the leadership of Moses. Now we are snatched from the clutches of Satan the wages of sin. He has put an end to death. This is gospel. This is good news for us who have suffered all our lives under subjection to lifelong slavery. If you don't know sin as slavery, you don't really know sin. Sin has you by the throat with an iron grip and will not let you go. The thraldom of sin is our greatest reality. We're all bound, enslaved, imprisoned to the fallenness of ourselves. 
Our mind has been affected by sin. We can't think right. Our emotions have been affected by sin. They are vile and they are deceiving. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, the prophet asked. And even our wills. Our wills are chained and enslaved. Our will is only going to do what our mind tells it to do. Our will is only going to choose that which our affections are attracted to and we are in love in. So our will is enslaved to a darkened mind and vile affections. What other kind of decision do you think our will is going to make? Our will is bent with the proclivity to do only those things that we think are right and that we want to do with all of our heart. And those are invariably sinful acts. Now the teaching of Scripture is not that every single thing we do is a vile and wicked thing. There are good deeds that are done, but they are not efficacious in any way. And they're done with mixed motives, and they're done partially, and they're done in an inferior way, and they're done without a thought for God. And when you begin to line it all up, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags in His sight. In our sight, we're pretty proud of our righteousness. But in His sight, they just won't make it. I hope you're not here this morning thinking you're going to get to heaven on your own righteousness. I taught a Sunday school class for about 12 years in this church, every Sunday. And I remember one of the first few Sundays I was on the job of teaching that class. I had a man in the class explain to me in kind of a question and answer, he explained to me how really how it worked it was a pretty good system God knows everything and he knows your heart he knows your heart's in the right place God knows you want to do what's right so God just looks at you and says what are your good deeds and God's a righteous judge and he looks at you and he's seen where you've been charitable and where you've been helpful and merciful and he's seen where you've been a good father and you've been a good uh, CEO and you've been a good uh, a, a tradesman, you've been a good husband, been an upright citizen. In fact, you've been a fantastic church member. You tithe, that's the most important thing in being a church member is you tithe, you come to church every Sunday. And so the Lord sees all of that and he, he stacks that all up. And then he looks over here on the other side of the balance and he sees some of the bad things you've done. Maybe a crossword, maybe a little cussing, maybe a little smoking, maybe a little swearing, maybe a little lusting, you know. But, you know, he's a big God. These are small things. These aren't going to hurt anybody. And God knows your heart. He knows you didn't mean to do that stuff. So God's going to size it all up, weigh it all out, and your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds. And let's just say you've really not been the kind of person you ought to be. You can kind of see some serious sin you've committed in your life, some hatred, some malice. Maybe not murder, but certainly devious and sinful hatred. And on down the line, and maybe you've had a pretty rough time in your life. Maybe in your youth, you committed a lot of sins that you're pretty aware were not righteous deeds. Don't worry about it. 
Don't worry about it. God's merciful. He can overlook that stuff. He can let it go. He's a big God. And he's going to line them up and weigh them. And then he's going to put his loving hand of mercy over here on the good side and tip the balance and you're in. You made it to heaven. You meet St. Peter at the gate. Well, I exaggerated a little, but that's really what the guy told me. <laughs> that's basically his, his philosophy. The gospel is that God is big enough to ignore your sin. God is good enough to do the right thing with respect to you in spite of what you've done to him. God's got big shoulders. He can take it. Your sins are not that big a deal. Your sins are not intrinsic to you. There's something extraneous. Extraneous sins that are just kind of incidental. That's not the way the scripture paints the picture at all. The biblical anthropology looks at our hearts and our souls the way we really are. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And God sees it all. And God has given you and planted you in your nature with a little mechanism to sort of work through it. It's called a conscience. Your conscience ostensibly is your true voice and your true self speaking to you the truth. And that conscience is not clear. That conscience has not exonerated you yet. And the reason is that conscience is God's voice. Still in your sin, in your depravity, in your darkness, that conscience speaks and says, you know, you're not right. The conscience says, listen to me, I'm not clear. I, I don't feel good about this. This book will talk to us about what God has done in Christ to give us a clear conscience. God has enacted a purgatory. Oh, not the purgatory you think of, which by the way is an unbiblical notion. It's why we have Reformation Sunday today. But there is a purgatory. There's a purging for our sins. And it's found here in this text where it talks about that he is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If you notice the different ways he's described humanity, he's called them the children of Abraham, he's called them sons, he has called them uh, brethren, and now he calls them, and he's called them children, and here he calls them the people. It's, it's the same group. It's humanity. It's the humans that Jesus has come to save by becoming himself human. And the passage says that he is a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word propitiation is the word halastern. It's the mercy seat. Jesus Christ has become the mercy seat. And you remember in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, the big slab of gold that was on the top of it with the, with the angelic symbols and their wings touching over? It was a slab of solid gold that covered the mercy seat. You don't want to do anything to gold, but just let it shine. 
It's beautiful. It represents the character of God. But so marred and so transgressed against that there had to be an atonement. There had to be a kafar, a covering of the sins of the people. And the priest, the high priest, went in once a year with the blood of the sacrificial animal and took the blood and splashed it all over that golden lid to the, mercy, to the, to the ark, the mercy seat. And that was the great day of atonement ceremony. The author of Hebrews is going to spell out a lot of detail and a lot of significance to that ritual in the Old Testament. The highest ritual in the Old Testament. The great day of atonement performed only by the high priest once a year. First he had to make an atonement for himself because he was not a perfect, a perfect priest, which Jesus is, so he doesn't have to make an atonement for himself. The author of Hebrews will spell out to us. But he went in with no sin himself, but he made a complete atonement. He was a mercy seat. There's where the mercy of God is found, not just in God dismissing your sin, discounting your sin, ignoring your sin. The only thing that's going to enable God to look past your sin is the precious blood of Christ that was splattered on the mercy seat in heavenly places on your behalf. Why did Jesus have to have blood? So that His blood shed would atone for your sin. There's no other way. That's how serious sin is. It cost the Son of God his life. A lot of people like a bloodless Christianity, but I don't. If you don't have a blood and blood atonement in the gospel, you don't have the gospel. My dear friends, you will listen in vain to many television preachers and many people that will never mention the precious blood of Christ. And that's the only thing that God uses. That's the only vehicle. That's the only thing through which God, the only mediating thing that God uses to, con to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness is the blood of of Jesus Christ. We speak of the blood being applied. There'll be more to come. I'm out of time, but I'm not out of sermon. <laughs> Let me stop right here and ask the simple question. To your conscience, has the blood been applied to your soul? As the old gospel song asks, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you trusting Him this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed? Are you washed? Have you been purged in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? That's my question. If you cannot answer yes with a clear conscience and with a confident, then you have one piece of business to do before you do anything else. Before you pray for the tornado victims or anything else, you get on your knees and you ask God to forgive you and apply the precious blood of Christ to your soul for all eternity.